I've taken up other things. I've tried to cook. I've gotten to bike riding. <laughs> There's other things I've taken on that I wasn't a natural at and I just gave up. But writing, I was kind of okay being bad at it for a long time. And I don't think you ever reach a point where you're done. I mean, I still feel incredibly disappointed in myself, sometimes proud of myself. But, you know, it's just something I'm willing to spend my whole life trying to improve. And that's either a blessing or a curse. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. How can you earn a living from your passion for the written word? Hi there, my name is Brian Collins and welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast. When I was starting off as a writer, it seemed to me that it was exceptionally difficult to earn a good living from the written word. That's probably because I was trying to earn a living as a journalist in Ireland. Ireland's a pretty small country and there was only a few media organisations that I could find a job working for. And they didn't pay very well, so it wasn't long before I gave up on journalism. But I quickly discovered that my experiences weren't unique. In fact, it's quite difficult or was quite difficult to earn a living from the written word, at least up until a few years ago, when a variety of platforms and tools online made it much easier for writers to connect with readers and their audience. You can start a blog, you can build a following on Twitter, you can self-publish a book, and then you can create a companion course. There's a plethora of opportunities for writers today. It really depends on where your passion lies, but it can be difficult to find time for all of these projects and to balance creative work with earning a living. This week, I call up with Adam Davidson. He's the founder of Planet Money, and he's also a former writer for publications like The New Yorker. He's also the author of the rather excellent book, The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century, which I recommend you check out. And in the book, Adam profiles eight different rules that people who are passionate about something can use and apply to earn a good living from whatever it is that takes their interest. And that, of course, includes writers. Now, one of my key takeaways from talking to Adam is that he's somebody who's found creative success working for NPR and through Planet Money. He's also built up a readership through books like The Passion Economy. In the interview, he talks about his next creative project and how it's more of a personal or passion project rather than something which is going to be overtly commercial. He also elaborates on, I suppose, the tension between doing something that pays the bills and doing something which can help you build a business, all of which are important and which are creative projects, and then doing something which is just for you, but which you want to release out into the world. And he explains what this looks like for him. My conversation with Adam reminded me of when during the pandemic, I spent a good year writing a story-driven parenting book for new dads. The book's called I Can't Believe I'm a Dad and it's out on Amazon. Now, as you may know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, most nonfiction authors who earn a living from their book earn a living by having a course, by offering consulting, by offering public speaking, or by having a series of nonfiction books on the topic in question. I plan to do none of those things with this book. It was a once-off creative project. It was simply something that I wanted to write because I had lots of stories from becoming a dad unexpectedly when I was 24. I'm 40 now, and I wanted to turn them into uh, the kind of advice-driven book that I would have liked somebody to offer me over a pint of beer when my girlfriend became pregnant some 16 or 17 years ago. In other words, writing the book was something fun that I wanted to do, and I wasn't too concerned about the sales or the end results. Adam is doing something similar with one of his creative projects, and he elaborates on that in this week's interview. 
I hope you enjoy my catch up with Adam. If you do, uh, please leave a review on iTunes because more reviews and ratings will help more listeners find the show. Or you can also share it with another writer friend on Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher or, or wherever you're listening. Now let's go over to this week's interview with Adam Davidson. Welcome to the show, Adam. Hey, Brian. Wonderful to join you. Your book has some fantastic ideas about how anyone can earn a living from their passion. What struck me is it's something that writers can do and perhaps it can help them overcome the, the kind of the myth of the starving artist. But before we get into all about the key ideas inside of your book, could you give listeners a bit more information about your background as a writer? Sure. I'm one of those people who's always wanted to be a writer as far as I can remember. I actually wrote professionally at age eight and nine. I, I grew up in New York City and there was a local newspaper and I don't even know how it happened, but my parents arranged for me to write children's reviews or reviews of children's shows at eight and nine. And I remember being so incredibly proud to be, to write something that was published. And I was part of another children's journalism thing in, in junior high school and wrote in high. So it's really all I've ever wanted to do. I think I imagined I'd be more in the fiction space. I tried my hand at playwriting. So I sort of fell into journalism more in wanting a paycheck, but I've really become in love with, I don't write anything, any fiction. Some of my, some people I've written about declare that I've written fiction. I'm joking. I'm making, <laughs> I'm making a bad joke. Yeah. You know, and I'd say the world I think of myself in is kind of, you know, it's sort of pretentious, but the literary nonfiction. So it's journalism, it's nonfiction, but it, you're trying to use narrative structure, dramatic structure, scenes, characters, feelings, emotions, all of that, as opposed to like hardcore breaking news reporting, which can be well-written and can be less well-written. Were those storytelling skills that you described, skills that you picked up on This American Life? Certainly This American Life is probably the single biggest influence and Ira Glass are for sure. I mean, I, I grew up, my dad's an actor and I have this memory of, he was a member of a theater company that was popular in New York City in my childhood in the 70s and 80s called Circle Rep. And I remember being at a party with, I might've been 12 or 13, I can't remember, but my dad and a bunch of the people from the theater company. And I remember like all the actors were being very performative and singing songs and being loud. And I was sitting next to one of the playwrights who was sitting kind of in the corner observing and was talking to me. And I was like, that's the coolest guy here. He's really taking in what's happening and reshaping it. And, and I remember thinking like, I want to be like that guy. That was so cool. So I grew up with a, a real respect for, well, good writing, but I think I was a pretty terrible writer for a long time, or maybe not terrible, but certainly not confident, not overly competent. And so working with Ira Glass at This American Life really gave me a language, a structure, a way to really get deep in thinking about how stories work. Ira's sort of a, oh, is he, do people know him in Ireland? I would imagine some people do, yep. Yep. And obviously your listeners are all over the place. But so, yeah, he's probably the single biggest influence. Although the New Yorker magazine, certainly just reading people in the New Yorker, trying to figure out what are they doing? Why am I having the feelings and, and thoughts I have when I read this writer or that writer? Trying to understand what they're up to. has I feel like that's something I've been doing certainly since high school. Although I'm guessing a lot of writers, you know, it took me a while to 
even think I could ever be a really good writer. I think I always felt like there was some magic that I didn't have access to. A lot of writers or new writers would kind of face that limiting belief. I think so, yeah. And Ira Glass actually has a lovely talk he gives where he talks about how someone who's going to become a good writer, often you have a sensitivity to good writing. And that's really one of the most important things to have is is being able to feel when something's well-written or not well-written. But it can really damage you because your writing, your output is not as good as your ability to assess. So you're even more aware of how crappy a writer you are. So when I talk to young writers, you know, something I say is, this just is a thing I'm willing to devote my whole life to. Like, I'm okay. You know, I've taken up other things. I've tried to cook. I've gotten to bike riding. (laughs) There's other things I've taken on that I wasn't a natural at and I just gave up. But writing, I was kind of okay being bad at it for a long time. And I don't think you ever reach a point where you're done. I mean, I still feel incredibly disappointed in myself, sometimes proud of myself, but you know, it's just something I'm willing to spend my whole life trying to improve. And that's either a blessing or a curse. Yeah, there was an idea. I think I got it in Out in the Wire, which is a book about storytelling that, that you're actually profiled in, which I first came across your, your work. But it talks about how when you get to a certain level with a craft, you go back and see what you did a year ago, and then you can spot all these new mistakes. And then you raise the bar on yourself and and just that process keeps continuing. Yeah, that is something I do believe that as you get better, it actually becomes harder, that writing becomes harder in a way. Now, what gets easier, I find, is the self-doubt. The self-doubt is still there. Everything I write, I still have a, there's a voice in my brain saying, this is so terrible that it's going to cancel everything you've ever written and you're going to finally be revealed as a loser. And I've never silenced that voice, but I now don't pay as much attention and I can have some distance and say, oh yeah, that's that voice that always comes. And I don't care as much. Whereas in my 20s, certainly I kind of believed that voice and gave it way too much credence. Would you say your your work on radio has influenced your traditional nonfiction writing and journalism? Or is it more the other way around? I mean, I'd say it's it's both directions. Radio and print are very different. They demand very different things. And it took me a while to figure it out. So there was like a two-year period in 2011 to 2013 where I was sort of dual employed. I was at the New York Times Magazine and at NPR's Planet Money, which is the national radio network in the U.S. And The idea that my bosses and I came up with was that I'd report a story and then I'd be able to do it for print and do it for radio sort of at the same time. And what I learned is they're just so different and the requirements are so different that I really just had to report them as two separate stories, even if they were about the same topic or the same people. And I found it took me a while to, I remember when I had been doing a lot of radio and then I wrote for a magazine being told that my writing was way too casual, way too conversational. So Planet Money or This American Life as radio shows are very conversational style. And so I try and get more formal. And then there's a time when my radio scripts became way too formal and too much like the New York Times or whatever. And that was a little 
frustrating. Although eventually, I mean, it's it's like learning a second language for a while. It's really hard to think in that other language. But now I, it feels more natural when I sit down to write radio. I just kind of do it. I think some of the things are very similar. I mean, certainly at a high level, you want a narrative, you want characters, you want scenes, but the way you get there is is quite different. It sounds like a tone is something, an accessibility is something you, you think about a lot because I was following you on Twitter and you were talking recently about uh, how some academic writing can be can be difficult to find a way into. And sometimes that can be a barrier for people consuming academic work. Yeah, I mean, I think that writing... A lot of writing requires empathy, empathy for the reader and understanding where the reader is. So a lot of what I've written about is economics and finance for a lay audience, for a broad audience. And I spent a lot of time trying to think, where is that reader? Do they understand the basic like nouns and verbs? Do you know, if I'm going to do a story about how investment banks are trading credit default swaps, I sort of have to assume most people I'm talking to or writing to don't really know what an investment bank is. They don't really know what it means to trade a financial product. They don't know what a credit default swap is or what any of those words mean in this context. And so I have to be empathetic to that reader. Now, if I'm right, if I were writing for an insider financial press, I, I could write differently, but I do certainly when I was at university, I found it very frustrating how academics, the amount of stuff you're presumed to know is too much. <laughs> it, it hides the material in an inaccessible way. I suppose every industry has its own language and terminology, which is familiar to people working within it. And then they're kind of victim of the curse of knowledge. And then they assume other people understand what they're saying. And maybe they get surprised or frustrated when, when the general readers or viewers don't. Yeah. I mean, I think it's totally appropriate to use jargon and to use technical terms when you're talking to a technical audience. You know, This American Life or Planet Money, we had very specific technical language for certain types of narrative moments. But I think some academics sometimes, I don't want to over... They both want to use technical jargon and they want to complain that the general public doesn't understand their field. And so... My feeling is if you're going to use technical jargon and you're going to write for a very narrow, already informed audience, you can't also complain that a broad audience doesn't get you because what are they supposed to do? <laughs> you know, go to grad school in your discipline? Mm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one thing that drew me to your work as well was, um, I suppose there's an idea that it's difficult for writers and creatives to earn a living from something they're passionate about. But I, I guess that's a kind of a something that you argue against for in your book, where you describe how you can turn a passion into a potential career. So how could a writer do that today if they were struggling or they feel like it's a really difficult profession to earn a living from? So writing is very challenging to earn a living from. So I don't I, I definitely don't want to say, oh, don't worry, you're gonna make a fortune. <laughs> Just do whatever you feel like. I think that there's a slight bit of a paradox that I would say strong writing, storytelling, narrative has never been more valued. There's never, it's sort of amazing. If you stop any executive at a big company and say, what do you think of storytelling? Five years ago, they would have said, what are you talking about? Like, you mean for my kids in kindergarten? Like they wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Today, it's an obsession. <laughs> There's a real recognition that 
in this economy, in this, you know, competitive, global, fast-changing economy, telling a powerful story is more valuable than ever before. And, you know, if you Google corporate storytelling or business storytelling or whatever. So similarly, you know, you look at kind of the golden age of TV and film and, but making money as a writer in many ways has never been more challenging. It's really, really hard. So, and that, that is the case for a lot of passion-based work that there's something you love there's people willing to pay a lot of money for it, but to get that money, you may or may not have to make certain compromises. So what I would say is, first of all, it's kind of defining what do we mean by writing. So in my mind, when I use it for myself, I really mean constructing a truth, a true narrative. It's a narrative that you are creating. So you're making strong selections about which characters to follow, how to build scenes, how to build an overall arc, how to identify moments of drama. I really love that process. I find it very challenging to do that for others, like, you know, being hired by a company to write their narrative. I just find I can't do it. I have to care. But I have found that I can do quite well teaching people in companies how to tell their story and the basics of storytelling. So that's been my personal compromise is I'm going to make money by taking the skills I think I have and the knowledge I have as a writer and creating these courses and these consultancies where I'm arming people in corporate America. Most of my clients are in America at the time to tell better stories and then hoping to make enough money <laughs> off of that, which so far has worked so that my writing can really be what I want to do. And I don't have to worry so much about my own writing, having a market. That's interesting. It sounds like you separated the, I suppose the pressure on your writing to pay the bills from what you do to pay the bills and earn a living. Like that's a new thing. That's a pandemic thing. That's something in the last two years. So I had, you know, kind of, I'll be honest, like a, my dream career. I went, I went to NPR where I created Planet Money, which allowed me to do long form radio writing. I went to the New York Times Magazine, then to the New Yorker. I wrote a book and, you know, I wouldn't change any of that for anything. It was a wonderful, lucky break. But I just reached a point where what I learned is the higher you get up in prestige, at least in American writing. So the New Yorker, I think, is widely considered the top place for a nonfiction writer in America. It's a wonderful place. I don't want to put it down at all. I love it. I love my time there. I love the people there. But you are now a part of a major institution. And every word, every page has a lot of eyeballs on it. And a lot of stakes are very high. Each issue has to be great, which is wonderful. I'm not mad at that. But it, I just found I wanted to, as I enter my 50s, I wanted to have a time where my writing is a little more playful, a little more my own. And I just didn't see a way. It felt like a trade-off I was no longer happy to make is putting my writing life in the hands of others, even if they're the best in the world at it and they're wonderful people. Like it's, it's not an insult to them. It's just, I wanted something different in my life. So the writing that you're describing that's, that's more playful and personal and maybe has less feedback from, from lots of different editors, is that something you're going to publish in a book or on your site or, or elsewhere or on the radio? 
Yeah. So I'm working on a book. It's actually a book about, it takes a lot of the ideas of the passion economy, but it's focused on one cheese maker in Vermont. Vermont, where I live, is famous for artisanal cheese, like really nice cheese. And this is probably, depending on who you talk to, like the best cheese maker in America, or certainly one of them. And it's just a fun story that's a business story. I mean, it's kind of like each chapter of my book, The Passion Economy, I profile one person or one business that found a way to make a business around their passion. And this will be like a book length version of which I'm excited about. Then I'm working on a few different podcasts that I'm excited about with some friends, working on some TV shows, writing scripts. So I certainly hope all of these things eventually make money and reach the world and are edited and stuff. But I just didn't, like when I was thinking about this book on cheese as an example, I could come up with a more commercial idea. I could come up with an idea that was going to get a bigger advance, that was going to maybe get more publishers interested. And I just felt like, well, I just want to write a book that's exactly the book I want to write. And if it has smaller audience, that's fine with me right now. Maybe I'll change my mind and maybe hopefully it will get a big audience. I'm not against big audiences. It sounds like it's a personal creative project or a personal passion project. Yeah. I mean, it's still a commercial project. I do want to be clear. Like I, I will try and get the biggest publisher I can and try and get the biggest advance I can and want it to have the biggest marketing campaign. But honestly, I find that because I've been a writer, I've never had a period of my life an extended period of my life. Whereas writing stuff just for myself, you know, I, I've always had a boss. I've always had an editor and I've always written. I mean, in high school, I'd write short stories, but nobody would see them. Or maybe my English teacher would see them. In my twenties, I would write plays, but nobody ever saw them. So I've, I really haven't had a period of my life where I was just seeing what I want to say and seeing what I want to write. And I wanted to try that before I'm frankly, too old. and But I still hope they're commercial. These aren't like, I'm not writing in my diary. Like I, I do want these to be published books or published articles, and I want them to get a big audience. I just don't want to be driven by that. And for a book like that, we just rely on tra a traditional publisher to promote it for you, or are you you're going to go to your audience on Twitter or maybe hope that readers of uh, The Passion Economy pick it up out of interest? Yeah. I mean, I love the new world of kind of writing in public, writing in writing with an audience. I mean, I'm from kind of a traditional New York City-based world of media where certainly 10 years ago, maybe five years ago, being self-published was like shameful. I mean, you'd rather be a prostitute than be self-published. And now I'd say it's still looked down upon by elite media folks, but it's not as looked down upon. Now, my preference would be a publisher, like a big New York publisher. My last book was Knopf, which is one of the best publishers in America. And I'd love Knopf to publish my next book. That'd be great. I would love that. But I also really enjoy connecting directly with people. Like I'm, I'm pretty open to the idea that it would be more of a kind of a group project, a shared project. Mm. Interesting. A, a lot of uh, well-known US writers have kind of left their publications and employers to set up personal newsletters where they're sharing their writing? Is, is that something you, you might explore? Yeah, that would be something I'd explore. The reason I haven't really done it yet is because it's too... Even that, I don't want to have to write once a week. I want to be able to write 
like I really am in a self-indulgent period, you know, that where I, I really want to kind of find out what do I want to, I just feel like I need a year or two of just writing, following my own drum. But the economic picture for elite high, high prestige journalism in America is is bad. When I was in my 20s, in the mid-1990s, if you wanted to be a magazine writer, the ultimate goal was $3 a word. You were willing to settle for $1 a word, and you thought you could probably start getting $2 a word. That would be a typical model. So if you're at a 3,000-word article, can I get 3,000 bucks for it? Fine. I'd rather get 6,000, but one day I'll get 9,000. And in the mid-90s, I mean, you had The New Yorker, you had the New York Times Magazine, but you also had all these other publications that were really publishing like really beautiful nonfiction, Esquire, GQ, Playboy, Chicago Magazine, all these, we had all these alternative weeklies. I mean, almost every town, the Chicago Reader, the Village Voice in New York, the Washington City Paper, who were paying like real money for real literary nonfiction. What's funny is at the time in the mid nineties, we kept bemoaning the fact that it was no longer the mid-80s, when there really was a crazy amount of money and opportunity. But today, it's still, you're hoping to get $2 a word, you'd settle for a dollar a word, and if you're really lucky, you get $3 a word, but more than likely, you're getting 10 cents a word or 20 cents a word online. And there's far fewer kind of traditional legacy publications. There's obviously way more online publications, but those pay truly terribly. So that traditional path, there's far fewer options and they pay very poorly. And there's no real like, so that, that was why I wanted to completely restructure my writing life. I wanted to move from into this world where I made my money in a way that was writing adjacent that allowed me to, and I really enjoy, I love spending time with people, helping teach them how to write and coming up with frameworks that take all the things I've learned and make them repeatable and learnable. I love it. So it's not like a woe is me kind of thing. I hate doing corporate writing. I hate being hired by some company. I've tried it. I hate it, you know, to write something for them. So that wasn't acceptable to me. But this teaching thing, I'm really enjoying. And then it frees me. So right now it's probably half and half, where half of my time is kind of doing stuff to make money. Half of my time is more creative. It might even be like 75% making money, 25% creative, something like that. But my goal is to flip that. So it's 25% making money where I can cover my basics and then move on. So you're teaching online via your course, but you're also teaching in person. Yeah, we have a video course that we're launching next week. When is this going to? It'll be a few weeks. So the course will be out by the time you've launched yeah. So we, we have a video course if you go to masterfulstory.com. And then we do live courses like twice a year where the video course is just, I recorded it. You can take it. There's workshops and assignments. But then the live course, it's more of handholding and coaching. And then we do private engagements for certain companies. So we're working with LinkedIn, working with some others where we, it's more like a private training and coaching for for particular people out of business. That's how I took the things that I'm most passionate about in the world of writing and figured out how to make the least number of compromises and still make money. But other people, I'm not saying the way I did it is the only way to do it. It's just, that was the, it took me like 
eight months last year. I literally, I finished my book and then I spent like eight months. How am I going to build my passion life? How am I, I'm giving everyone else advice on how they should do it. How am I going to do it? And I really explored all sorts of ways of, I have this lifelong passion for writing. How am I going to turn that into a business that will support the way I want to live my life? And that this is what I came up with, which I feel pretty good about. I think it was a good outcome. You described a 75, 25% split a few moments ago. So what does a typical day look like for you at the moment, Adam, where you're writing? One great thing about deadline journalism is you have one big assignment and you have an editor who's going to be mad at you if you don't finish it. I really have organized my life around deadlines. And so I am really struggling with projects that I love and I'm excited about, but I'm the only one who's excited about it. Like I haven't yet, I don't have an editor. I don't have outside pressure. And that is, that's my active struggle. I have one writing project I'm so excited about. So there's the cheese book, which I am doing work on. There's another book, which is, I'm working on with a friend who's a historian at Harvard. And it's an idea, it's basically there is this true crime that happened 4,000 years ago that we have all these cuneiform tablets that tell us the story. And it's a great story, brother against brother and kind of international intrigue. It's kind of amazing. It's like true a true story that we know a lot about from these cuneiform tablets. And so we're trying to write a, basically a novelization of a real crime. And it's so fun and so exciting. And I keep putting it off because there's other things that are urgent. So that's really what I, I'm trying to build is how do I protect my passionate writing when on any given day, there's going to be five or six like pressing things, but they're not my passion. And I'm struggling with that, to be honest with you. If you have any suggestions or if anyone else does, I'm really open for them. Yeah, those are difficult questions. <laughs> Got to pay the bills, but important to have time to work on yeah. what you're passionate about too. Yeah, it's tricky. I guess that these are life challenges, right? We are, are always balancing and they seem like classic writer challenges. Mm. Good problem to have too, though. I suppose some writers at the start of their career could be struggling to find any time to, to write. Um, so you mentioned the courses on masterfulstory.com. Is there any other places uh, listeners should go, Adam, if they want to uh, listen to or read your work? Yeah, at adamdavidson.com is pretty much everything I've ever written or recorded. It's a little messy. I have to work on the website, but I think I've posted pretty much everything there. And then my book, I'm on Twitter a lot at Adam Davidson. Okay, I'll put the links in the show notes. Thanks for your time, Adam. It was a joy. Thank you, Brian. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store or sharing the show on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. More reviews, more ratings, and more shares will help more people find the Become a Writer Today podcast. And did you know for just a couple of dollars a month, you could become a Patreon for the show? Visit patreon.com forward slash become a writer today, or look for the support button in the show notes. Your support will help me record, produce, and publish more episodes each month. And if you become a Patreon, I'll give you my writing books, discounts on writing software, and on my writing courses. Thank you.